privilege today of introducing Paul and Virginia Friesen. So they spoke to us last night at the marriage conference, and many of you were here and able to already hear from them and benefit from what it is that they brought. And they come again to bring us the word from the Lord, again speaking to us about our relationships, about our marriages. And I'm privileged to have them here. So years and years ago, Leah and I participated in one of the Engaged Discovery Weekends that they run regularly. So, and again, we did that, gosh, ages ago. <laughs> Long time. And obviously it's stuck. No, but we are certainly glad that they are here today. And so I want to turn it over to them. Paul and Virginia. Thanks so much, Adam. Uh, it is our joy to be here. Uh, it's good to be back. Some of you, uh, we met last time we were here, and then I was here during the summer. And uh, it's good to see old friends, or actually some of you we really like. So um, it's, it's fun to and meet new people. Uh, for those of you that weren't there last night, the number of veiled and not so veiled references to being on time was the church was kind enough to put us up at the Heartstone across the way. And... Uh, at 6.15, there came a knock on the door, and I thought it was the turndown service or something, and it was Dan who was there and said, I'm ready to introduce you. We thought it, I thought it started at 6.30, it started at 6. Uh, so we were a little late to our own conference. Not, at, not, not because of Dan's fault. He had set me the agenda completely, but in my mind, 6.30 to 8.30 was a great time to have a marriage conference. And then, uh, so that's a memory about being here last night, and then I couldn't quite remember what I spoke on. I couldn't find it in my notes uh, when I was here in December, and so I wrote Dan and said, August, whenever it was, who cares? But anyway, um, I was here, and I wrote Dan, and he said, oh, it was the burnt toast. And so that helped me remember. It was the burnt toast illustration that, as we sat down, there was burnt toast, because I had burnt toast downstairs. Uh, and it wafted up through the sanctuary. So we're glad to be with you. There was a point to the illustration of the burnt toes. By the way, it wasn't just burnt toes. We are so delighted to be back, especially to be with Adam and Leah. Um, we actually don't remember you specifically for engagement matters, but we will say that they're the only couple that actually has survived that, so we're very thankful <laughs> to celebrate. <laughs> And actually, and Dan and Candy, who we ministered with, and we were on staff at Grace Chapel, and then we spoke in Seattle, and they were at a church there. And it's just so um, encouraging to us to be with people who are faithfully pressing into the gospel and who are faithfully living out the call. And we cannot tell you how delighted we are to be with you this morning. I said it's been a long time since we've been in a church that actually played some hymns. And having been lifelong Christians, both raised in churches where the hymns were central to worship, we're just grateful that you haven't forsaken them, nor have you forsaken today's music. And I think that's just a wonderful blend. So thank you for what you're doing here. It's a great, great privilege for us to be with you. And we always thought it was cold up here. This is really pleasant. I guess <laughs> this is a normal January, so uh, we're starting to look at real estate up here for maybe wintering up here. It looks wonderful. Uh, this morning we're going to be speaking on the topic of good friends. And as we start, I just want you to think about... Your good friends. Think about your four best friends. And if you have a bulletin, maybe jot their names down on that. Or if you don't, put it in your mind. Uh, the four best friends 
that you have in life right now. We're going to be speaking from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text and get into our talk together. Father, thank you again for just the incredible joy of being with your people in your place, in your house. And uh, today we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, give us a word of encouragement or challenge or whatever it is we need from you. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit can use your word in unique and different ways in each of our lives. So with expectation, we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Reading from Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. That's a wonderful story, familiar to many of us, that actually happened with a paralytic. And uh, one of the things we want to say right off the bat is wherever Jesus went, he was intriguing. It says there was such a crowd at the door that they couldn't even get in. Uh, Even those who didn't agree with Jesus were intrigued by who he was, by his message. Uh, If we are to be imitators of God, uh, we as Christians should be intriguing. People should be intrigued by how we live life. But unfortunately, often when people think of Christians, they think of irritating, not intriguing. But our lives should be lived in such a way, whether they agree with this or not, they say, but that's an interesting way of living life. I I appreciate that. I hear that. I'm intrigued by it. I love doing weddings. But I, I especially love doing weddings when the congregation are not believers. It's just an opportunity to talk about God's design. I did a wedding for a family that if I mentioned their name, you'd all know the family name. And after the wedding, the uncle of the groom came up to me and he said, Pastor, I have never heard anybody talk about marriage like this. This was wonderful. He said, I have personally been married six times and I've never heard a sermon like this. He's now been married seven, but it was six at that time. Uh, we need to never forget that it is good news that we are proclaiming. It is God's good news in every aspect of our life. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the what, where, who, and when of good friends. Uh, So, the first is, what is keeping you from living fully? Uh, The story here is about a paralytic. 
And I was struck as you were praying uh, for people in the congregation and in the community, and I love that you do that, that there are many people who are suffering, and they need friends around them. And this is a story of somebody who is suffering. He had paralysis, and he had four friends. Now, when we think of that, uh, of, of paralysis, we may not, you know, we're not paralyzed, but we all have things that are paralyzing us. Yeah, I'm guessing that all of us have somebody in our life who is physically paralyzed, and we know how much um, energy and effort it takes to care for a person who is physically paralyzed. So we actually might read this story as a person who is not paralyzed and think, well, this doesn't really have very much to do with me. But I'm going to suggest this morning that actually it does, because paralysis actually comes in many different forms, not just physically. For some of us, we have relational paralysis in a variety of areas in our lives. Some of us might be in a marriage in which we actually feel paralyzed. It doesn't matter what we try. It doesn't seem like we can get beyond the place that we're stuck. If we're single, some of us may feel very paralyzed in that station of life. Maybe like our middle daughter, we've always wanted to be married, and God hasn't brought the right person into our life, and we feel kind of stuck there. Or maybe we were married and now we're single again because of divorce or because of death or some other circumstances, and we may feel like we're sort of paralyzed in that place of our life. Within our families, I can guarantee you that there are at least a few in here this morning where you have relationships within your immediate family or in your extended family where there is paralysis, where there's no real relationship that's happening. And you may ask yourself the question, will this ever change or can it ever change? And so we're going to suggest that this story has huge application for every single one of us, regardless of where the paralysis in our life can be identified. And sometimes the paralysis comes from areas outside of our own life, but uh, often what paralyzes us from living fully are our own decisions. Uh, sin in our life will often paralyze us from experiencing what God wants. So I want you to think, uh, what is that besetting sin in your life that tends to paralyze you, keep you from living fully as God would want you to live. And most of us have something that it's an area that we struggle with. So just think for a second in your mind, what is the one area of sin that perhaps paralyzes you? We want to make this real, so I think we'll start with Kevin, and we'll just go down, we'll just go down the row, and uh, each of you just say what it is. Uh, we, we don't want a long talk, we just want a word. Anger, pornography, you know, uh, gluttony, whatever it is, just let's go to... Oh, we don't have time for that. Okay, we won't do it. But, you know, Kevin broke out in a sweat. Uh, because we all have areas in our life that keep us from living fully. We want to focus on two of them that we have found in our own life and working with families and couples are fairly universal, and that is the whole area of selfishness and our response to authority. So let's look at selfishness first, because we all can claim this, can't we? I mean, Scripture tells us that we are born in a state of sin. We are born selfish. We are born thinking that we should be the center of our own universe. And the only thing 
that breaks that distortion in our lives is a genuine encounter with Christ. But even when we've genuinely encountered Christ, we aren't freed from our own selfishness entirely. It's going to be a battle that we all struggle with for the rest of our days. By the grace of God, as we continue to follow him closely, we have great hope that our selfishness will lessen and that we'll become more and more Christ-like, which is the call of a Christ follower. But the truth is that we're fighting a really tough battle here. We've already established that internally we are born selfishly, so we have a predisposition to being selfish, to living for ourselves. Add to that, we live in a culture that actually lauds and encourages our selfishness. I mean, just think through ads for a moment. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. The greatest goal in the life of the average American is just to be happy. And whatever it takes to be happy is okay by our cultural standards. I love the story of the mom who is trying to teach her two young sons, who were three and five, how to not be selfish. She was making pancakes for breakfast, and she came out of the kitchen, and she heard the boys arguing over who would get the first pancake. Seizing the moment, this teaching moment in their little lives, she said, boys, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, give my brother the first pancake. To which the older boy said to his younger brother, okay, how about if you be Jesus today? (laughs) And we laugh at that, but isn't it true? We would certainly love somebody else to be Jesus, but ooh, that sacrifice that it takes for me to defeat the tendency towards selfishness in my life is a really, really tough one. In some areas, it's easier than others, but every single one of us will struggle to live selflessly in a more Christ-like manner. And you think of these four friends, how they acted not selfishly, but really serving, unselfishly to serve their friends. All the things that they went through so that their friend could come to Jesus. And one of the things that we have to keep saying is, whether you're a parent or uh, a child, a teen, a young adult, how do we fight this area of selfishness? And we think the antidote to uh, entitlement and selfishness is service. It's really looking for ways to serve. It's as the prayer requests are given, say, oh, I could help. I could take a meal there, or I could take that person to an appointment. I can do that. And, you know, I think these people, the four friends, when they finished taking their friend to Jesus, they didn't go, oh, that was horrible. Any of you ever been on a mission trip? When you come back from a mission trip, you say, oh, I hated that. I hate serving. No. There's something in us that loves serving. Hmm. And we watched it in action all weekend last night from the many who served to help the couple's date night come off from the child care to the kitchen to setting up to tearing down. And again this morning, and Adam actually asked me to say, to remind you that they need child care workers. <laughs> no, Adam didn't actually say that at all. But so often... We shy away from serving, and yet to be Christ-like is to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and there's great joy. As we've pondered this story many, many times, we've just thought of the many things that those four friends probably gave up that Saturday morning. And if we put it into our modern-day life, they had to sacrifice time at home, maybe time with their wife or with their children. They maybe had a whole laundry list of things they were going to do that day, you know, work in the yard or 
do the errands, get the groceries. You know our lives are busy and Saturdays are pretty important. And yet these guys gave up whatever they had on their agenda that day to serve their brother whose only desire was to get to Jesus. And again, as the story unfolds, we can only imagine what those four friends felt like at the end of that day. When uh, we did a family mission trip, we went to Haiti, and our youngest daughter, Julie, was uh, 12 at that time. And when we flew through Miami, there were all these posters of Disney World. And she said, do you think next year, instead of going to Haiti, we could go to Disney World? And we said, the parental will see, which means dream on. But uh, we said, we'll see, dear. Eight days later, we came back, same airport, same posters. She said, do you think instead of having Christmas at home, we could go back and share in Haiti next year? Eight days. What had happened? Service had gotten her heart. God had gotten her heart for those, and it changed it. Uh, Servanthood is the antidote to selfishness. The other area that we pretty much universally struggle with is the whole area of our response to authority. When somebody says authority, do you go, oh, I love that. Uh, If we're honest, most of us don't. If you're driving down the road and a car with Christmas tree lights starts coming up behind you and a little noise siren goes on. And as the police officer walks up, do you say, oh, thank you so much for stopping me. I didn't realize I was doing something that was endangering me. No, we may think things that we don't utter because our children are in the car. (laughs) You know, every one of us suffer from authority deficit disorder. Right? Whether you're an infant and your parents tell you don't put your finger in the socket, or whether you're a teen And you tell your parents, I didn't ask to be in your family. How do you have to tell me what to do? And then your response as a parent, I prayed for a child and I didn't get the one I prayed for. So we're uh, we're even. No matter what what it is, we struggle with this whole area of authority. And yet scripture is really, really clear that we all are to live under authority. Children, what does scripture say? Children. Obey your parents in the Lord. It's just, it's clear. Now, are some of your children smarter than you? Some of your children. Are you smarter than your parents in some way? I expect so. But that was like, yes, you're a pastor's daughter, of course. You say the right thing. But a lot of parent, a lot of kids are smarter than parents. Does that mean they have authority over their parents? No, because God has given the parents authority. Jesus was smarter than Mary and Joseph, right? And yet he was obedient to them. Because that was God's order of authority. Scripture calls wives to submit to their husbands. And I know that is a tough one. It never. But that's what Scripture says. Because God has given husbands a role of authority. Never to be used selfishly in every way. Always to be used to serve. But he's given an order of authority in the home. But with every role of authority, God says don't use it in ways that are harmful. Children, obey your parents. What's it say right after that? Fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't use that authority in a way that's harmful. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife like Christ did. Be the servant. Be the chief servant in the home. Make sure you're providing for her, protecting her. Um, our words, those of us in positions of authority, our words are powerful, are they not? 
And we need to be careful for words that we use that those are under our authority. I got an email from a gentleman that said, for my part, I grew up with a controlling, critical, rageaholic father. I can count the number of times my father ever complimented me over his lifetime on one hand. It was constant criticism. I was never enough with my dad. See, if we're in a position of authority, we need to use it well. Why is authority so important? Because ultimately we're all called to be an authority of God's, under God's word. He has the lordship of Christ to follow him as a disciple, to obey his word, whether we understand it fully or not. It is not up to us to determine what God's direction is. It's up to his word, which clearly shows that to us. So we may be discouraged. Wow. We're selfish. We don't like authority. We're paralyzed. Is there any hope? Well, yeah, there is hope. So first, what is the thing keeping you from fully living? Secondly, where are you going for fullness of life? And they could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. So we don't know very much about the paralytic except what we actually read in this text. But I'm assuming that he had been paralyzed for a long time. And I'm guessing that there had been many healers that had come through Capernaum over time that had given him a sense of a false hope and not delivered the goods. Somehow, this man was convinced that Jesus was different than any of the other posers that had come through. And we're going to underscore that that's likely what motivated his confidence that if only his friends could get him there, that he had a great chance of being healed by the one who seemed to actually deliver on what he said. I've often thought about the obstacles that could have kept those four friends from getting the paralyzed man to Jesus. I, it, can you picture just for a moment what it's like to carry a full-grown man on a stretcher some distance? We know from wherever they picked him up to wherever Jesus was. It wasn't next door. It wasn't across the street. Dan could not have quickly gotten there to tell him they were late. So they carried him at physical expense, right? Then they get there, and the house is overflowing. There's no way they are going to get inside of the house. And I'm going to guess that for some of us, we might have given up at that point. Some of us have gotten places in life, and it's like it's impossible to get in there. I guess we'll just go home. But no, these four friends said, we're not stopping now. And so they kind of destroyed the part of someone else's house. So determined were they to get to Jesus. And I've thought about that a lot because one of the commentaries on American culture is that we've sort of lost our resiliency. That somehow with the World War II generation, the greatest generation ever, who stopped short of nothing, that's no longer true in general of Americans, but it needs to be true of Christ followers. We need to believe that getting to Jesus should not be stopped by any obstacle in our lives. There were great obstacles for these guys. Many of us are stopped at pretty small obstacles. Even things like we're in a new year and some of us have decided we're going to read through the Bible this year. It's, a, it's our New Year's, it's our perennial New Year's resolution. But we're going to really do it this year. Today's only January 12th and we might really still be doing it. 
But to be very honest, for most people, they're not going to accomplish that because it's easier to sleep in than to get up in the cold morning. Or it's easier to turn on Facebook than it is to be in the Bible. Or it's, I'm going to do it tonight when I get home. I'm too tired once I get home. Or the distractions are so many that many of us stop at what are seemingly small obstacles from actually getting to the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to challenge us to take a page from these four friends who stopped at nothing in order to get their friend to Jesus. So the question is, for us this morning, do you really believe that the greatest thing you can do is introduce somebody to Jesus? That's the greatest thing you can do, is take somebody to Jesus. Now, as Virginia said, the paralytic is lowered through the roof. And, you know, I don't know if Adam was preaching, all of a sudden the ceiling starts falling. That's a little distracting, right? And that's what happened. The the ceilings, and here comes down on a stretcher a paralytic. The four friends have succeeded. The paralytic must have been very excited. He expects to be healed. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's put yourself in that real position. You're the paralytic. Why did the paralytic go to Jesus? To be healed. And he comes down and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I think he said, oh, great. I think that's what he said. Oh, great. I'm now I'm a saved, paralyzed person. I wanted to be a walking person. That's why I came. And I think often we're like the paralytic. We come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Say, Jesus, I'm coming to you, so I'll have a job. Jesus, I'm coming to you, so I'll have a girlfriend. Jesus, I'm coming to you, so I'll have a husband. Jesus, I'm coming to you, so I'll get healed from this or that. Jesus, I'm coming to you. And Jesus isn't indifferent to those things, but Jesus says, no, your greatest need is that your sins are forgiven. That's your greatest need. Now, once that happens, it's interesting that Jesus also heals him physically. And we find that often when we get our lives connected right with Jesus, he meets us in some of our physical areas as well. But never miss this. Our greatest need is not what we often ask for. Our greatest need is Jesus himself. We come for things that we often don't really want. So last, uh, thirdly, uh, first, what's keeping you from living fully? Second, where are you going for fullness of life? Third, who are your friends and where are they taking you? Okay, remember those four friends that you wrote or put in your mind? Here's what I want to do. Are those friends taking you to Jesus? When you hang around those people, do you go closer to Jesus? Or are you taking them to Jesus? But if any of your four friends are taking you away from Jesus, you've got to scratch that off. Right now, just scratch them off. They can't be your best friends. They can be friends. They can be people you're praying for, you're concerned about. But they can't be your primary friends because good friends don't take you away from Jesus. Good friends take you to Jesus. Uh, Anybody in here dating? Is that still a form? Anybody dating? Anyone? You're dating? Anybody who's not married, dating. Thank you, Dave. Well, you know, one of the questions is if you're dating somebody, you, you ask that person. What's your name? Abigail. Abigail. Okay, Abigail, if you're dating somebody, you're not. That's good. You shouldn't start dating until you're about 35 or so. But... um, 
if you're dating somebody, Abigail, if you'd raise your hand, I'd say, Abigail, who are you dating? You say, George. I said, is George leading you to Jesus? Because if he's not, dump George. You can't date anyone who's leading you away from Jesus. Our daughter served in Uganda at a short-term mission. She fell in love with a man named Derek. And she wrote us and she said, when I'm with Derek, I grow closer to Christ. That's what a dad wants to hear more than anything else. Didn't hurt that he was the director of a neurological pediatric hospital. But the, the main thing was, when I'm with Derek, I grow closer to Christ. Who are your friends? Where are they taking you? What about your non-human friends? I don't mean like imaginary friends. Uh, what are they? But before we get to my yeah. non-human friends. Why don't you talk about human friends? Yeah, I'm going to hang here just for a moment because the people we hang out with have a great influence on us. If it's a person who's not influencing us well, we will often say, oh, but, you know, but I can witness to them every once in a while. I think we have to be very, very honest with ourselves of who we're allowing to speak into our lives and whose lives we're allowing to influence us because we become like the people we're with very, very often. I had a woman come into my office and told me that she was going to be divorcing her husband, and I said, "What on what grounds? I said, is he unfaithful to you? No. Is he um, abandoned you? No. Is he not providing for you? No. How is he as a dad to your three kids? He's actually a great dad. Why are you divorcing him? I just, I don't like him anymore. And all of my friends think I should leave the jerk. And I said, well, just a minute then, who are your friends? Why don't you talk to me a little bit about your friends? Oh, well, they're the girls that work in the salon with me. Okay, and are they married or are they single? Oh, they were all married, and now they're all single. And I said, those are probably not the voices you should be listening to. I think we have to be very, very careful about whose voices come in, not just the person sitting next to us or the person that we meet up for with coffee, but who's speaking to us through television? Who's speaking to us through social media? Who is speaking to us through movies? Who is speaking to us through magazines and through books and all those other influences that are coming at us fast and furiously in a culture? We have to be very vigilant to guard our minds and our hearts and realize that most of the world around us are not seeking God's best for us. Well, except for Hollywood. I'm sure that there are many there who are... It just astounds me that we place so much confidence in Hollywood's rating system on movies, knowing that Hollywood is really interested in only one thing, and that is financial success. They really aren't interested in helping to produce fine, upstanding, God-honoring people. So we have to be super, super careful. And I actually never have talked about this in um, a sermon, but especially in view of Sanctity of Life, I just want to give you a, a tiny vignette of a woman who I think if she were living today as a young 23-year-old mom of three children under the age of two and a half, and whose doctor said to her, another pregnancy is going to probably kill you or the child or both of you, because of chronic nephritis uh, situation that was occurring in her life. I think that if she were living today, I think that most of her friends would have said, follow the doctor's advice, terminate the pregnancy. It's not worth it. You've got three little children. It's the only practical thing to do. But that young 23-year-old 
was a Christ follower and along with her husband decided that they needed to trust him for the outcome of this pregnancy. And I was born seven months later. And that woman celebrated her 90th birthday on Tuesday. Mother of seven. I'm the fourth of seven. And she wasn't, my parents were not um, flying the face, disregard the doctor. They just had multiple forms of failed birth control back in the day. And so they had seven healthy children in a span of 12 years. We are all still living. My mother is still living. And she actually didn't tell me the story until I was 26 and pregnant with our first child. And as I said to her on Tuesday when we celebrated her 90th birthday, I will just be forever grateful that she chose to trust God rather than to trust the advice of a professional. Not that there are not times that we trust, obviously, our professionals around us, but there is a higher calling for us who are Christ followers. And whatever the outcome of that had been, my parents were ready to receive it. And so who are your friends and what are they saying to you? How are they encouraging you? I'm very deeply concerned that the church, in its attempt to be empathetic, has become complicit with divorce. I feel that there are many, many who just want to come alongside and encourage and comfort, but who have chosen empathy over being prophetic. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that we do need to be compassionate and we need to be empathetic. But I think we have to offer the hope of a transforming God who is bigger than our problems. And so many of us settle at a place of, and I'm not talking about egregious grounds for divorce, because God has granted divorce for situations where there is ongoing, unrepented of infidelity or abuse, abandonment. But I am talking about the number of marriages that are failing because of incompatibility. It's just not meeting my needs. It's not what I thought it would be. And so often we come alongside and say, yeah, you shouldn't have to live with a guy who doesn't remember your birthday. I mean, really. Or whatever the situation is. And I realize there are more complexities than that. But can we not agree as a body of Christ that marriage is God's design with the potential of being a reflection of the Godhead? It means a huge amount to God and the carrying out of his purposes on, on earth. And so can we be those who are compassionate and listening, but who continue to offer the hope of the gospel? God can get you through this. Get some counseling. Be in the word. Be who you're supposed to be. Trust God to do a work. We have seen so many marriages transformed through our over 40 years of ministry that we can loudly proclaim that God is faithful and that he can do things that we can't even imagine he can do when we really do trust him. So get those friends around you that are encouraging you and preach good news into your life, encourage you with God's way, and stay away from the friends that are not going to help you. And again, those, some of those friends and are not helpful. They're not real human friends, and we don't want to step on any toes, but there are a lot of things, as Regina said, things we're watching, things we're bringing into our life that are taking us away from Jesus. It's just a very simple question. Is what I'm, the people I'm involved with and the things I'm doing, are they taking me to Jesus or taking me away to Jesus? And uh, I, I just want to say we have found over and over again the whole area of alcohol is taking us away from Jesus. 
And uh, we're, we're not one to say you can have a beer with pizza or a glass of wine with dinner, but that's not where the problem is for a lot of us. And we've just got to say, are the people we're hanging with, the activities we're involved, taking us to Jesus or taking us away? Because that's the greatest thing. And then lastly, when others see you, will they be amazed? When the paralytic is healed, it says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. When the people saw uh, see our lives, are they going to say, wow, that's amazing. Virginia and I were asked to go to Hawaii and speak, and we followed God saying, here I am, send me. And uh, so we're there, and we try to go a week early to get acclimated to the area, you know, and stay a week later to just sort of ponder what's happened uh, after we speak. But we're there in this lagoon, and we're swimming with like a 100 turtles. It's phenomenal. And, and we're taking pictures, and when we came back, we showed people the pictures of our turtles. And you know what they say? Where is that? I want to experience that. And that's how our lives should be. People see your marriage. How, how does that happen? You guys seem happy. You know, your family, they seem to enjoy doing things. What is it? And you say, it's the power of the gospel. And we point people to Jesus. So, good friends, we have the best friend in the Lord, obviously. The only one who can actually transform us. But we as his followers, as Christ-like followers, need to be those friends that are leading people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this true story about your bringing not only physical healing to this uh, man, but forgiving him of his sins, his greatest need. And we pray that you will help us to really believe that personally and to have the joy of coming alongside others so that they may also be introduced to you and to find salvation in you. In Christ's name, amen.